he colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, <laughs> then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who, were, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoke to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowds answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you. For a light while for a little while longer, walk while you <clears throat> while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for all 66 books of the Bible. We thank you for the truth that you reveal to us through these holy scriptures. And as Pastor Paul comes up here this morning, we just ask through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would draw truths out of these scriptures, that you would place them deep in our hearts, that we may walk out of this building, us as believers, glorifying you and honoring your name. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd certainly invite you to turn to John chapter 12 if you have your scriptures with you today. We will look at a good, a good part of what uh, Tom just read for us. We'll have to come back and get a little bit of it next week uh, as we move into the next section as well. Uh, but we'll look at a good portion of verses 12 through 36 this morning. 
There's a saying that is uh, often attributed to Julius Caesar. In Latin, it is alia iacta est, which is interpreted in English as the die has been cast. Caesar was known for his unbridled ambition and his unsurpassed oratory skill. And these traits combined to gain him a great following, to make him a, a powerful and popular leader. And his popularity grew to such an extent that the Senate, and especially Pompey, were deeply alarmed, and they issued him an edict that he should disband his army, lest he become an enemy of the state. Well, in January of 49 BC, Caesar was staying in the northern Italian city of Ravenna. He had a decision to make. Either he would acquiesce to the Senate's command, or else move southward towards Rome to confront Pompey and to start an inevitable civil war. Now, there was a law that no general should cross the river Rubicon, and no general should ever bring his army into the city of Rome and into Italy proper. It is said that Caesar wavered a little when he came to the Rubicon River, and then all of a sudden, drawing his sword, marched into the Rubicon River and cried, Alea iacta est, the die is cast. And he marched into the city of Rome and into war. This phrase that Suetonius attributed to Julius Caesar means that a decision has been made. There is no turning back. You have passed the point of no return. And this, I believe, is the sense that we are supposed to have as we enter into this portion of John's gospel. Because here, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, the die is being firmly cast. There would be no turning back. It was a point of no retreat. What Jesus was moving toward must happen. And though the scene begins with what seems like joy and acceptance, Jesus was fully aware that the inevitable battle was about to begin. And we, as the reader, are meant to sense the considerable narrative tension between Jesus being at the height of his popularity and his looming betrayal and arrest that was already being planned by his enemies. Jesus will indeed triumph. He will be lifted up, but not in the way that his entrance into Jerusalem anticipates. At the conclusion of the text from the beginning of chapter 12 that Les preached from last week, <clears throat> John tells us that Jesus' popularity was at an all-time high with the Jewish people. After all, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. So any underlying current that Jesus was the promised Messiah had been dealt a serious increase in voltage. And as a result, people wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see this Jesus who could call people back from the grave. And they wanted to see Lazarus 
who had been dead for four days before walking out of the tomb in which he had been buried. So when they heard that Jesus was in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd came out to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. And when they saw Lazarus alive and well, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, this was becoming such a problem for the Jewish authorities that hated Jesus that they went to the extreme of not only trying to find a way to arrest and kill Jesus, but what else are they doing? They're making plans to kill Lazarus. Now, that type of outlandish decision just goes to show the level of response that Jesus' raising of Lazarus had brought from the Jews. But here, when we get to verses 12 and 13, we are left with no doubt as to the extent of the situation. Because here we find Jesus coming from Bethany to Jerusalem. And understand, this was the time that his whole earthly ministry had been leading up to. Throughout his three years of public ministry, there had been opportunity for Jesus to build off the popularity that he gained through the signs that he had done. Even if you remember back to chapter 6, after he had fed the crowd of 5,000 hungry men from a meal of two fish and five barley loaves, and after there was still 12 baskets full of leftovers, the people who saw the miracle said this, They go, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. But Jesus did not take advantage of their amazement to to gain position or prestige. Rather, John tells us in chapter 6, verse 15, and this is important, he says, perceiving then that they were about to come and to take him by force and do what? And make him king Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That was then. This is now in Jesus' ministry. And now, at this appointed time by the Father, Jesus does not withdraw. Instead, he moves toward Jerusalem And he does so at a time when messianic expectations were at their peak. Right? This is the time of the Passover. And hundreds of thousands of Jews filled Jerusalem for this feast. Some even estimate there are close to a million people that would make the pilgrimage, that on top of those who already lived in Jerusalem, that would gather at this time. So this was no little family reunion, all right? This is a time of celebration, of festivity, a time when messianic expectations were high. And many of those who made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they were likely Galileans, who were well acquainted with Jesus' ministry, many who had seen 
or been around the scene when Jesus had done some of his mighty signs and wonders. And John also tells us in verses 17 and 18 that the fever pitch of response to Lazarus' resurrection had not died down either. Right? It says the, the crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to do what? To bear witness. In other words, they were walking around telling anybody who would hear them about what Jesus had done with this man named Lazarus who had been dead in a tomb for four days and now was alive by the word of this Jesus. So such was their witness about this miraculous sign that all those that they told went out to meet Jesus as well. All right, so there's all these people in Jerusalem gathered for Passover. And with all the things that are going on, at the top level of the buzz of news, traveling through Jerusalem was the news of this Jesus. This one who had just raised Lazarus from the dead on top of all the other things that he had done. So what do they do as they leave Jerusalem and they head to meet Jesus as he makes his way the two-mile trek from Bethany to Jerusalem? Well, what they do when they go out leaves no doubt as to their mindset toward him. Verse 13 tells us that they took branches of palm trees and they went to meet Jesus who was bound for Jerusalem and they cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. All right, so their actions are pretty unmistakable. They were proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah, the long-awaited King of righteousness who had come to bring salvation to his people. And as such, they were rejoicing with songs of praise and their waving palm branches to signify their nationalistic hope that the messianic liberator was coming. And Jesus does nothing to squelch their acclamation, does he? Not this time. Rather, he heightened it by choosing to fulfill a prophecy about the coming king of Israel from Zechariah 9.9. By finding a young donkey and riding on it, Jesus effectively agrees with their pronouncement, doesn't he? What is he saying? Why does he do this? Because Jesus is proclaiming that he is the coming king of Israel. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the fulfillment of God's word given through the prophet Zechariah. He is their coming king. And he is coming to Zion, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey just as we read in Zechariah 9. He shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be to the ends of the earth. 
Yet, in verse 16, John tells us that he, meaning John, and the other disciples did not get why Jesus was doing these things. As they are with him, headed to Jerusalem, why does he want a donkey to ride on? Right? This seems to be the thing. As you're reading this, this seems to be the thing that confuses them. This action. They hear the rejoicing and the praise of the crowds. And they get why these people are amazed at what Jesus has done and why they want him to be their king. But why does Jesus take purposeful steps to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Now, I think that this is an important point that John inserts here regarding the confusion of the disciples. Because it sets the precedent for the events of the Passion Week that are coming. Here's how. There is a profound misunderstanding about the role and purpose of Jesus coming to bring salvation. Yes, Jesus is coming to be the Savior of his people. But not in the political or nationalistic way that they desired and anticipated. You see, if that is what Jesus had wanted, he would not have ridden into Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey. No, he would have come in riding on a war horse and stirring up insurrection against the Romans. Wouldn't that be more suitable for Jesus to come into Jerusalem riding on a white stallion? But that is not Jesus' purpose as Messianic King. The Son of Man isn't coming as a political savior of Jerusalem. He's coming as the divine Messiah. He's coming as the seed that must be cast into the ground and die. He's coming as the sin bearer. He's coming as the servant of the Lord who must be obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death. He's coming as the savior of the world. And though the disciples don't understand it, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, God will open their eyes to see this when they behold Jesus as the risen and glorified Messiah. John's like, yeah, that's when we got it. But at this point, they're still trying to figure it all out. And so Jesus not only accepts his role as messianic king, now he defines his purpose as messianic king. As this scene of Jesus' triumphal entry and really a very misunderstood entry into Jerusalem concludes, John tells us that the Pharisees are exasperated. It's interesting to watch these different groups, isn't it? The crowds, Pharisees, right? The disciples. 
all trying to figure this out, all coming at this thing from all these different angles. And we come back again now to the Pharisees. And they, they, don't, they don't know what to do. You can tell that they are just over it. Right? All of their attempts to stop Jesus seem to be totally in vain. And that is because they have been. <laughs> Why? Because no one takes Jesus' life from him. He lays it down of his own accord and in solidarity with his Father's will. And he does so in order that he might draw all people to himself. All right, so get this, because in this way, the Pharisees' words are quite prophetic, aren't they? What's they say, what do they say in verse 19? So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. So much like Caiaphas, who has said that it was better for one man to die for the people than, the whole nation, than that the whole nation should perish. And John says he spoke unknowingly but prophetic words about the gospel. These Pharisees prophesy much better than they know as well because the whole world has gone after Jesus. Just look at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Interesting. That is what comes right after these words from the Pharisees, isn't it? Because these Greeks not only represent the whole world as Gentiles being introduced into this Jewish scene, they also stand in contrast to the Pharisees who are angered at Jesus' following. Because these, these God-fearing Gentiles from, from some part of the Greek-speaking world who had come up to worship in Jerusalem, they have a very specific desire. What do they want? They wish to see Jesus. So at the very moment that these Jewish authorities are turning most severely against Jesus, here we have some Gentiles desiring to talk with Jesus, to see Jesus. All right, so this whole scenario sets us up to hear directly from Jesus for the first time in this setting. So Philip and Andrew, they come to him, come to Jesus. They tell him that there are these Gentiles, these Greeks that want to see him. But Jesus doesn't directly answer their inquiry. Instead, his answer speaks into the bigger picture of what is going on in the whole situation. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, in this instance, the approach of the Greeks is for Jesus a kind of trigger, a signal that the climactic hour has dawned. And so he says to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now up to this point in John's gospel, when Jesus speaks of the hour, it has always been future, right? We, you can go back through and trace it through John up to this point. He will say, the hour is coming, or the hour has not yet come. 
But now, he says, the hour is here. The hour has come. What does he mean by that? Again, trace it back through. And in each instance, the the setting makes clear that when he speaks of the hour, he is speaking of the time of his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And so here he says, that moment is an immediate prospect. And this is the reason, this is the time for why Jesus came. For this purpose, I have come to this hour, Jesus says in verse 27. Only now is the real glory of the Son of Man going to be displayed. All of the miracles and signs and wonders, even Lazarus' resurrection, all of these things had been a prelude to this hour, to this appointed time. For the truth is, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And herein lies Jesus' resolute purpose in coming to be the Messiah. The glorification of the Son of Man will take place in his death because it is by his death that he gives life. Much fruit is going to be born as a consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection. Many will receive life because of this one man's death. And Jesus reiterates this same truth in another way in verse 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth. Now Jesus had used these words before. Do you remember back in chapter 3 in his discourse with Nicodemus? Jesus had reminded them that just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's referring to the events that will begin with him being lifted up onto the cross. This was the kind of death that he was going to die. And the point is that these events must now occur. And he's resolute about it. It is by no means easy for him. His soul is troubled, we see in verse 27. He is, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We can hear something of a foretaste of Gethsemane in these words, can't we? And nevertheless, he is determined to do the Father's will. 
He won't let it go now. The die has been cast and Jesus had come to fulfill his role as the shepherd king. And by entering Jerusalem, Jesus begins a series of events that have been eternally determined, planned from the very beginning. It was for this very hour that the word became flesh. It was for this very hour and in this very hour that he would display his glory full of grace and truth more than in anything else that he had accomplished. It was through this very hour that Jesus would bring salvation to all who believe on his name, Jew and Gentile alike. For he says, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. This is the implicit answer to the Greeks that had come asking to see Jesus. It is an answer that resounds to us today. Jesus said the hour had come for him to die and be exalted, and in the wake of that passion, all people will be able to come near to Jesus by faith and to know him as Savior, as Lord, and as friend. He opens the eyes of our heart in faith to behold his glory full of grace and truth. So if you say today, friend, I want to see Jesus, Well, then look at the text this morning and see Jesus and see him high and lifted up. See him as the one who came to lay down his life for you. Because had he not laid down his life for you, then you would not be able to draw near to him today. You would not be able to know Jesus. You would never be able to see Jesus. But the promise to you today, Christian, is that because Jesus came to lay down his life, because he was lifted up on the cross, All who look to him today might live. And when you look to him today and you live, he makes a promise to you. And he says, I am coming again. And where I am, you will be also. And you will be like me. Why? Because you will see me as I am. Your faith will become sight. And so no, he didn't just forget the Greeks and their question. He's answering it to them and he's answering it to you. To those who come, we are called to not only partake of his grace, but to participate in his mission. Did you hear that? To all who come, we are called to not only partake of his grace, but to participate in his mission. 
Christian, we are to follow our Savior's example in his resolute desire to do his Father's will. In our willingness to lay down our life for the good of others, the glory of the Father, and the salvation of our souls. And so, as we come to the conclusion this morning, this is what we need to hear, Christian, is Jesus' call for us to follow his example as our messianic king. Look at verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You ever read those verses or verses like those and ask yourself, what am I supposed to do with that? What does that even look like for my life? Well, first, let me tell you what I am pretty sure that it is not saying. Jesus is not telling us to hate the life that he has given us in this world in order to please him. We are not being called into a monastic lifestyle or to an embittered life just waiting for Jesus to come and get us out of this mess. Rather, Jesus here is using an idiomatic expression to draw our attention to a deeply important gospel truth. That following Jesus means joining him in what he was sent to do. And what was Jesus sent to do? Well, he just told us, didn't he? He came to give his life so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Think about this. Had Jesus fallen in love with his life in this world to where the pursuit of position and the, the pleasure of fame and power had led him away from his mission... Well, yeah, he would have been a nice, shiny grain of wheat for a while. And everybody, just like we see here, would have wanted to come and see him and get a little taste of Jesus. But his life would have had no lasting impact. It would have remained alone and never produced any multiplying impact. And that would have probably been a lot easier and comfortable on him in the short term. Because the mission of Jesus was hard. It is hard to give of yourself. Can I get a witness? It is hard to surrender your life to the will of the Father. It is hard to not fall in love with the shiny, self-satisfying, 
self-glorifying gods of this world. It is hard to lay down your life for the good of another. It is hard to take the self-denying, self-giving role of a servant in a world that worships comfort and power. It is hard to not love your life in this world so much that you hold to it tightly in fear of losing what you are trying to make it to be. But Jesus' point is powerful and it is true. If a grain of wheat dies, if it dies, it does what? Bears much fruit. So what's he saying? He's saying that a life that is ultimately lost is one that is loved, okay? The life that is ultimately lost is the one that is loved to the point that it focuses on self-preservation and self-promotion with no thought of loving God and neighbor. Now, sounds good at times to us, doesn't it? But he says, that's the life that is ultimately lost. You, you may gain wealth and power and prestige for self in this life, but it is lost for eternity. Because if you look to some created thing to give you meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will always eventually fail to deliver and it will break your heart. On the other hand, a life that is surrendered to Christ in this world, that is regularly yielded, and I mean all the time yielding, <laughs> that is regularly yielded to Him, that is lived for the spread of his gospel love and grace to our neighbors and to the nations. A life that is truly lived as though it is not your own, but belongs both body and soul in life and in death to Jesus. Such a life bears much fruit. Such a life is assured a glorious inheritance of eternal life with our Savior, just like we quoted together in our assurance of pardon from 1 Peter 1. As John Piper writes, suffering for Jesus is temporary. Pleasure in Jesus is eternal. In other words, there is no ultimate self-sacrifice in following Jesus. Only ultimate joy. What does the psalmist say? That in his presence, there is fullness of joy. How long? Forevermore.
You see, when we follow Jesus, we do so with the promise of his presence now and for all eternity. What's he say in what we call the Great Commission? I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And here, right in our text today, verse 26, where I am, there will my servant be also. Ultimate joy because of the presence of Jesus. And when we follow Jesus in service and self-sacrifice, get this, the Father sovereignly bestows his honor on us. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, the Father will honor him. So I want you to think about this. What greater gift could we ever receive than an ever-present Savior and the God of all the universe being our Heavenly Father who is always for us? Pretty good stuff. So following Jesus on the Calvary Road is hard, and here's why. Because self-denial and laying down our life for the good of others goes against every bit of our natural tendency to self-love. But while following Jesus is difficult and sometimes costly, here's what Jesus is telling us today, friends. Its eternal value is off the charts. And that is the key. Believing that laying down our life now for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of the Father is not the end, but only the beginning. Why? Because God our Father has caused us to be born again to what kind of hope? A living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded, because he's for you, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that is what the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism help us to ponder through the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Ooh, that's a loaded question. The answer, that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul. That is all of me. Nothing held back from Christ. Both in life and in death, that is always in the good and in bad that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. 
Do you get what he just said right there? Everything that is happening in your life, God is working about ultimately for your salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So church, let us arise and go to love the captive soul. And when faced with trials on every side, we look at these promises and we know that our outcome is secure. And I love this line from that song. For Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. That is the prize for which Jesus died, and he will have it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Father, I pray that these powerful, hard but powerful words will rest in our hearts in such a way